Welcome to Indoctrination, a weekly conversation series about protecting yourself from systems of control. I'm your host, Rachel Bernstein. Hi, everyone. Please go to patreon.com slash indoctrination and become a supporter of the show for any amount you can. It is necessary to keep the show going. I pay for it out of pocket. And so anything that you can give will help keep it on the air, which will be invaluable for the people who listen and the people who want to be able to tell their story on the show in the future. So again, go to patreon.com slash indoctrination and become a supporter. And now for the people who help to support the show for $10 or more a month, again, I couldn't do it without you. I know I say that every time, but it's really, really true. And so to Sheila and Sheridan, Holly, Catherine, Pammy, David, Apostababe, Donna, Jessica, Mislav, Michael, Zofia, Audrey, Alex, Ken, Katrina, Christina, Brianna, Ludwig, Scott, Peter and Cynthia, Linda, Jolie, Camus, Lillian, Sylvia, and Maureen. Thank you, thank you, thank you so very much. Mark Vicente is an author, speaker, and award-winning writer, director, producer, most well-known for directing the sleeper documentary hit, What the Bleep Do We Know? Several books have been written about the film's remarkable grassroots marketing campaign, which led to its unprecedented success. Being born in apartheid-era South Africa and witnessing a number of atrocities, Mark found himself propelled to question certain fundamental assumptions at a very young age. Beliefs about human behavior, morality, existentialism, and mysticism. He spent a good part of the late 80s and early 90s shooting anti-apartheid films before going to Hollywood. He has traveled two parallel paths in his life so far, one working his way up the ranks of the camera department in the film industry, eventually becoming a film director, and the other an unquenchable thirst for self-knowledge. This quest led him through many different religions and self-help organizations, and it all came crashing down in 2017 when Mark found out that the company he was working with and the mentor that led it was hiding illegal and deeply immoral activities. Before he could even begin to heal, he and a few other brave souls had to become whistleblowers to expose what they were discovering. The journey of taking down the Nexium organization and its key figures is captured in the nine-part HBO documentary series, The Vow, currently on the air. He has developed a keen and passionate interest in exposing the coercive and duplicitous strategies of high-control groups. His memoir, Mentor, or How the Bleep Did That Happen, will be released shortly. It chronicles the many untold stories of what occurred in Nexium, and he and his wife's harrowing campaign to escape and expose the organization. The cast of characters is far larger than people may imagine. Additionally, he is in production on a trilogy of films which expose abusive strategies. The first, called Narcs, Invisible Epidemic, is a documentary about malignant narcissism. I'm very happy to have you hear my conversation with Mark and the continuation of it next week. Here is Mark Vicente now. I'm hoping and I'm assuming life feels different where you are in your neck of the woods now. And Yes, it is much better, much better. Also, I mean, people are seeing in the HBO show, people are seeing 2017. Oh, yeah, yeah, right. That's right. That makes yeah, so sense. we're getting messages like, oh, my God, are you okay? And I'm like, yeah, that was three years ago. <laughs> the, 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 there's, there's a lot of war that's happened since then, you know? That's right. But it's very sweet. A lot of people reach out and say, like, are you okay? Do you need anything? You know, mm -hmm. are you okay? That kind of thing. That's lovely, um, actually. But, yeah, it's taken a while. I mean, I will tell you, it's interesting because of the war, which, you know, to some 
some people say, well, suddenly the war was over, you know, when the verdict came down on Ranieri in June 2019. But there was still the fallout. There's still people that are still loyal to him. There's still things that they're doing. So we all had to delay the healing for years. Now, in the last few months, we've had the opportunity to really begin. You know, so we have a lot more information about how these things work, but in some ways we're behind because we didn't have the time to invest in really doing the work that we would have been better had we not been fighting a war. Absolutely right. And I think that uh, it's a really good point. I think it happens to a lot of people who care, who care about taking this message out, who care about not just having something happen to them, but making sure they do education and prevention. And in part, it can be part of the healing, but you're right. There are these very primal pieces that have to get um, subverted because you can't be raw when you're doing all of this work. And it's like someone coming right out of prison and then getting involved in prison reform. And, you know, they need a minute. Uh, yeah. just to know that they're free and to not be, um, hmm, to not have that kind of regiment and sense in their mind and having to watch their back and all of it. Uh, and right. so then they can heal. But so it's hard when you have kind of this, this activist spirit, which helps make change in the world. Mm-hmm. And then you have to make change with you. And mm-hmm. sometimes they don't happen simultaneously. So I, I do hope, even though I know now with a lot of press and a lot happening with The Vow on HBO, that that's your focus. It sounds like you've made a lot of effort to also make you and your lovely wife and your souls your focus also, which is really good. We have. It's good to talk to you because I can talk about these things. <laughs> it's it's weird because it's it's surreal having having the show out because people are now seeing into our life, you know, what happened, you know, 2017 and or it's strange. It does bring up a lot of stuff for us. There's a level of, um, I think most people that have seen it that have compassion and empathy, you know, that reach out to us say like, wow, it's really raw. Mm-hmm. It's really, really intense. And, and it is. And so it, it brings up a lot of memories of a lot of things. Um, at the same time, we're not where we were in 2017. Mm-hmm. Like I'm no longer in shock that somebody I thought was good was so far on the other end of the spectrum, okay. you know, so far down the, the, the hole of evil. I'm no longer in shock about that. I, I no longer feel the level of, of betrayal. I'm still very motivated, but it's, it's, it's differently now, you know, now we're spending time talking to certain people that are now waking up, mm-hmm. which is harder because it's one thing to, as you start to get like a little bit of evidence, like, okay, this is really bad. I'm leaving. Yeah. It's another thing to defend the thing for a long time yeah. after what's come out in court, what's come out in the, in, in the press and then still defend it. And then finally realize, oh my God, what have I, what am I been doing? That's, that's a very hard pill yeah. um, to swallow. So some people are starting to, to, to wake up or at least now start to want to talk about things that they've, they've buried, you know, so it's, it's an interesting time right now. So what I think is really interesting is that there is something about human nature that we need to sort of back up what we said. And so if we say it out loud and we say, this was great, mm, we then need to be behind it, you know, thumbs up. And, but we might not be. And suddenly Mm. we can find other feelings emerging, but we just said that to the press or we just said that to our families. And our friends or the people we recruited into it. And I'm wondering mm-hmm. if there are kind of steps that you need to take to undo that. Meaning, do you go to the people who you recruited to try to talk to mm-hmm. them about the feelings that you're having? Or mm-hmm. how do you manage that internal conflict? But really mm-hmm. having done nothing wrong, it is human nature to want to back up what you've said out loud. <sighs> yes, it is. And the thing that's funny. It's not funny. I, I say funny sometimes. I don't mean funny. I mean weird and curious. Uh-huh. In 2017, when I was trying to tell people, like, this is not what I thought it was, they would say to me, but you you were behind this. Yeah, yeah. Right. You you were so supportive of this. I And I would say, I know. I was wrong. And they're like, what? 
And they couldn't process that I was wrong. I said, yeah, I screwed up. I'm wrong. Mm-hmm. I was wrong. I, I, was, I didn't see what I, what I now can see. For some people, it took a while to try and process, okay, so you supported this thing, and now you had a realization, and now you're not only not supporting it, you want to dismantle the structures that are imprisoning everybody. And I go, yes, that's exactly what I want to do. Uh-huh. And then there's just, I think, which funnily enough, it wasn't difficult for me, this thing, which is basically, as you know, as you know, because you've spoken to a lot of people that have been in different organizations, you know, you spent so much time and to really acknowledge that the, that the time you spent mm-hmm. was not what you thought. Yes. You have to look at your entire life. Yeah. Right. So like in my case, okay, so a fifth of my life was not what I thought it was. And that's, and that's a difficult uh, pill to swallow. But if you can swallow it, you can make the transition to like, this is bad. I got to do something about it. Mm-hmm. You know, as you well know, it's so complex because, yes, you know, there's so many people that I, that I and, and others told this, you know, this is good. This is great. And at the time, we really thought it was because we really believed that we were having very deep understandings and, and deep, you know, profound realizations, which look. If you go into a you know cult slash high control group slash whatever, and you're spending hours and hours a day examining the way that you think, what you think, yeah. the way you relate to people, of course you're going to have these incredible realizations about so many things. Mm-hmm. But when you start to take in, well, what was the end? What was the design? What was the, the cult leader's design? When you really take that into account, you realize, okay, all that good stuff was leading somewhere really bad. Mm-hmm. And that's a hard thing for for uh, people to really take in. And that was, of course, I think in episode two, you see that. By the way, I have not seen the final version of episode two. <laughs> it's a hard one. <laughs> okay. I think in, as far as I remember, in episode two, you really see my struggle with, you know, Bonnie trying to tell me what she's seeing. I can't see it yet. And I'm holding on to what I believe is goodness until finally I have to literally pull apart and we may have to unpack this more. I know you'll understand this completely. I had to pull apart me from the teachings and him. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Because what these people do is they convince you that um, your values are their values and their values are your values. And so you're so intertwined in terms of your psyche that to, to start to question the leader means you have to start questioning yourself, you think. Because you think you're the same. Mm-hmm. And then you realize, hopefully, you realize, no, we're not the same. Like, I'm an earnest person trying to, like, make my life better, and you're, you're a liar, and you're a thief, and you're a criminal, and you're a sociopath, and you're all these things. But that's a very difficult uh, transition. Uh, what I think is so interesting, what you just got into, is that, that it is very hard when people are in uh, controlling relationships, relationships with narcissists, which is kind of what this is about, actually, that sometimes you don't know where you end and the other person begins. And part of that is very purposeful because I think if they're doing things that are would typically be against your grain or against your conscience, they need to have you have a buy-in that, no, no, this was something that is important to you, or this is a realization that you came to, that this is the way to be. Or otherwise, I don't think you'd go for it. It has to feel aligned with you. So I think they, if they can convince you it's you, then you'll be open to it, even if at first it feels at odds. Um, and so then, right, then you're entangled. Right. And I think to then kind of separate yourself out, like um, I picture like in a ghost movie, like this thing starts to like emerge out of you and you realize who you're left with, with it's just you. And you start saying, no, 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 wait, no, now I'm starting to feel myself again. I've kind of exorcised this other being, which can feel really good. It's disorienting at first. Yeah, it is. That transition for me was very, very, very challenging. I think that only, maybe I'm wrong, but I think that people that have gone through these things really have an understanding of what it's like, but you feel insane. You know, as you start to disentangle yourself, there's a feeling of complete insanity because your solid ground has been outside of you, uh, you know, with whoever you thought, you know, knew better. <laughs> and so as you disentangle, there is this strange feeling of, of free fall and not knowing, well, what the hell, then, then who am I? Right. 
I was very fortunate, you know, that I had, you know, I had uh, Bonnie who had already figured this stuff out and who was really, really instrumental in helping, you know, guide me through what, what I was going through. And I also had an incredible counselor who really helped me understand. And what the switch for me was finally realizing that all the, all the goodness that I thought was in the leader was mine. And that was just this mind-blowing realization of, oh my God, that's really who I am. That's really what I stand for. That's always been me. Mm-hmm. He was an empty something that just reflected it back. Because what I understand about these these the, you know the malignant narcissists, well, narcissists in general, but malignant narcissists is they really really mirror back to you everything you want to see and and who you are. Mm-hmm. And they convince you that they actually know you better than you know you. Now, the reason they, they do that is because they, they've literally been listening to every single thing you say. They've been, they've been making a map of you. You know this. this mm-hmm. and th- but this was my discovery in 2017. Oh, my God. They mapped me out. They figured me out. And I thought they were, they were these incredible, incredible people. And I was wrong. I mean, you were wrong. They're incredible in other ways, incredibly manipulative, incredibly smart in evil ways. There is something about studying people, mapping them, as you say, which I like that. I like that term. And then also studying social interaction and how much you can also push a person and what their response is to that. And then you get this sort of sense that you can maybe push them a little bit more. And also using um, public shaming and behavior modification all over the place and how people respond to that. Uh, and so there is a watchful eye that is unfortunately a very trained watchful eye. And you don't realize it because, I mean, I think just, you, I mean, you, you know, you know, Keith, I don't know him personally, but he may have come across as this sort of mellow person at times but who was, you know, doing a lot of mathematical calculations in his mind just didn't let you know. Um, And so to be able to know Mm -hmm. that, what was happening behind the scenes now, I'm sure it's very hard when you think about his demeanor and then picture what's happening in his brain. Yeah, and the thing about him, I don't know as much as you know about these, these, I haven't studied it the way you have, but in my, you know, three years now of, of voraciously learning everything I can about what happened and how they work. And by they, I mean, you know, narcissists. The, the, the thing that was so tricky with Ranieri is how covert he was and how he was like, a, a, he appeared to be a vulnerable narcissist, you know, who really seemed gentle. But what's interesting, I think, as people watch the, watch the, uh, the HBO series, you, you'll hear certain things that sound really gentle, but there's this terrifying violence that's there. And it sounds like so meek and mild, but they're messing with your insides and they're, they know what you're afraid of, you know? And it's, there is a violence that is so covert. And that's the thing to this day, I think that people have said to me that, that have been watching the show saying like, so weird he seems so reasonable mm-hmm. i'm like yeah that's the that's the mask so reasonable if you pushed him enough as i did towards the end you start to see you start to see the cracks but there was a conversation i had when i said you know I, I'm, I'm moving on to some other part of my life now and i was being very careful because i really realized like i was in, it was a very dangerous situation and Ranieri got very desperate and he, he sort of started to lose it. And he said, like, I figured out a mathematical understanding of enlightenment. And he was like, and then he shifted to something else. And he looked at the table and he said, you know, I have three ways to see people. You know, I can just look at the top of the table. And this is a metaphor. I can just look at the top of the table, you know, very cursory look. Or I can look more closely at what's on the table. And, it really started, and what he meant was I can look more closely at who a person is. And then... I can actually, from my vantage point, see under the table into the deepest parts. But, he says, now that's, that's a threat. But, he says, um, I would need permission to do that. And I, 
I am nonviolent, so I would not do that without permission. <laughs> right. And so what he's saying is, I can see you, but I'd already gotten to the point where I'm like, in my mind, I'm like, you're full of shit. You know, so I nodded my head, but I realized like you're desperate now. You're trying to literally use some kind of a mystical bullshit on me because you think it'll still work. And at that point, understand, I didn't really understand who he was, but I, I understood that something was really off. And that's what I mean by it sounds so, re it sounds so gentle, a metaphor about a table. And it would be equal to, if this was a religion, it would be equal to the cardinal saying, I can see things about you. God has shown me things about you, you know, that only I can see, blah, 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 blah. And most people who are under the thrall would be absolutely terrified. Because what if he can see these things? Right. Sure. And yes, and I think you're right about that. I, I didn't really know what it was at the time. Just something seemed off. I mean, that's going to be true for anyone who's in a situation who hasn't dealt with that kind of personality before. You don't have words to diagnose it, but you know that something is not adding up and something's making you terribly uncomfortable. And you suddenly are uh, potentially fearful of this person or looking down at this person. And, you know, there, there is something also you said before that I want to come back to, which is that when you said all the goodness in you, you attributed to him. Oh, that's so, so beautifully said, because we assume that what's true for us is true for other people. So if we're good people, if we're honest people, like here you, you contacted me with all that you have going on. And you said, hey, we had talked about, you know, chatting on the podcast. And I just wanted to let you know, I remember that. And you want to, you want to talk. And I thought, that's amazing that you remember that conversation. And you got in touch with me again, with all the press and everything happening. But that's being somebody who knows how to be honest, who knows how to be a friend, right? Just, you know, remembering the things that you said to people and coming back to it and being a man of your word, all of those kinds of things that then you are then going to be assuming is true for other people, especially someone who's there to help you and is there to teach you what is built into the system that keeps people's blinders on. So that's interesting you talked about, because you, you, in essence, you talked about projection a few minutes ago. And one of the things that, I think this was explored in episode one, but one of the things that I remember is, is in, in, in when I first went, I think it was my first five day that I went, I said to, to Nancy Salzman, something fishy is going on here. Mm -hmm. You know, and what she basically did with that is she listened, she she elicited from me all the things I thought were going on. I thought you people are too nice. It's too, it's, I was describing love bombing. I didn't know what love bombing was. Yeah, right, right. And she said, and then she listened to me and then she says, great, well, let's, let's continue as you do more education. And then we, the, the next uh, module was on projection. Then I go into the next module and it's all about projection. And then I'm horrified because after that, I realized, oh, wait, what if, uh, oh, shit, what if I'm projecting all this bad intent? And I go back to her office and she goes, so what do you think now? And I go, oh. And basically she says, you know, all of this bad intent that you're, you're assuming is not what's going on here. It's yours. Mm -hmm. And being somebody that really, really wanted to like understand myself, I thought, well, that's, that is quite a, that's quite a kick in the stomach because maybe what if that's true? Yeah. What if that's true? And so what that sets up in the educational model is that the things you're thinking are likely projection. And then there's also like, there's modules on, you know, speaking with honor and, you know, dishonor. And, and so the whole thing is constantly don't, don't affect other people's representation of a person. Be honorable. So now you're contending with, okay, these are my projections. I need to be honorable. So you see something that you think is problematic and you, you are led to believe that that is a, um, an issue that you're having. Why would you need to look for this problem in the leader, in leadership, in whatever? Yeah, yeah. What if it's not there? What if it's you? Yeah. So it's a self-sealing, self-blame system. Mm-hmm. Where literally you're, let me just say this, you're crapping on yourself all the time for all these thoughts that you're having in a system where everybody is in agreement that, that 
this guy and you know Nancy Solomon are really incredible. So as you're having thoughts of like I'm 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 worried about it, you're up against this whole society of people that are like, why would you why would you think that? And then you need to be fixed, you know. Right. So in retrospect, you know, I I look back and many of us do. We look back and go, yeah, there was this, there was something there, there was something there, there was some, there's all these red flags, you know, that go all the way back, but they're only really red flags when you wake up before they were niggly things that needed to be dealt with mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and then when you when you wake up you look back and you go oh my god they're raging flags blowing the wind making lots of noise yeah yeah and i there there was someone i i did an interview with who was saying and so it hasn't been out yet so this is a pre-quote to a quote that's going to be coming out where she was saying she heard that uh within the group that she was in multi-level marketing group that um, if you have rose-colored glasses on, red flags are just flags. I thought that was great. <laughs> wow. Because you just don't see them, right? Isn't that a good one? But also there's this thing of like, if you see the red flags or you look for the red flags, mm-hmm. you start to feel concern about your own goodness. Oh. Why would I seek out bad intent? Right. That may not be there. Right. You know, there, there's, so, there's so many in, in this particular educational model, as many, they're all pretty much the same, really, in the end. But everything was designed to, to protect leadership and have you um, literally punish yourself and then and look at other people and find their faults. Everything's about, it's this weird kind of, you're, you're stuck in this never-ending confessional. Which, which I know, you know, many people that that, are, that come from, you know, called high control groups or even abusive relationships talk about that, and that's when I finally realized, oh my God, this whole system was designed to spin your wheels, analyzing yourself, looking at what's wrong with you, because leadership can do no wrong. Yeah, right, and that's textbook. And if you haven't, I was going to say, if you haven't been in another cult, but even if you've been in another cult and you don't know that's what's happening. Um, yeah, you can find yourself going into the next one because that feels familiar. That the the I, I picture this diagram of the leader, and then all arrows pointed away from the leader. Uh, and so it's this exactly. um, right, and because they they have this fragile ego, so they can't have any any attention paid to them in any way where they need to show any kind of insight or need to feel bad about anything because they just they come across like they're above it but it's just that they can't handle it they can handle it actually less than the people in the group right that's really interesting because that's the thing that i didn't understand until i began to to wake up because what these leaders do is they design the whole system that they're invincible mm-hmm. and i i thought i thought that was true yeah until i discovered lies and then i discovered and then i began to question why is it that when somebody challenges him he reacts the way he does which i thought was probably commensurate with the thing they had done and then i realized oh no no he's having a tantrum oh that's what this is this is a tantrum Mm. and then i finally realized oh he can't handle rejection yeah all these people over a 20-year period that he and this empire sued into oblivion, potentially maybe framed for crimes they never admitted, was because he was rejected, which is generally why it seems that he's gone after so many, so many women. I can't think of a man that really, that he's had a battle. Well, actually, no, I think there, there were a few, but, but I think I was slightly different. But I do know that when I started to, when I left, uh, I do know from other people that he was obsessively trying to figure out what I was doing. And I think that it it irks these personalities because when they lose control, they they kind of lose their shit. It is very hard when people do want to come across as invincible, kind of this, you know, wizard of all, sort of the all-knowing, all-powerful. When somebody they respect starts to pull away and and then doesn't need them anymore. I mean, that's very, very hard. And it it interferes with this grandiosity. And they're not quite sure, I think, where to put that. 
And so you become of great interest to these people who are trying to then figure you out even more like where did they go wrong and where can they find a way maybe back in? And I'm wondering is as you were kind of pulling away, were you finding that he was trying to keep you kind of roped back in or what was the reaction that he was having to you? Because they don't react well to it. What I found he did as I pulled away is he he sort of tried to pull on what he believed were still the things I most wanted, you know? So, you know, where we had talked for years about, like, I really want to know myself, like Mm -hmm. who I really, really am Mm -hmm. beyond, you know, this, my personality, my responses, my reactions, the deepest part of myself. And so one of the things I remember he said to me, he said, you know, I just think it's a real shame that you're not here more often. And in my mind, I'm like, what the hell are you talking about? Like I, meet you at 3 a.m. Are you kidding? But, you know, he carried on pontificating and said, you know, I I just really wish you would give me, you know, three months where you, you know, you just, you, but but you have to promise not to hate me, where you just do anything I say and I can, I can help you. I can help you get there. And this was earlier, this was probably 2016. And I was, I didn't understand who he was, but I did, I didn't want to be in a position with anybody where I have to do anything they say for three months. And, and when you start to understand what he was doing, it's, it's kind of what he was doing with DOS. Mm. You know, he wanted to enroll everybody in this idea that, you know, the path to freedom is slavery. So he would try to pull on this, you know, these sort of this, these, these mystical yearnings that, that we, we had talked about for so long. He said to me at one point, you know, I really thought that you would take over from me, that you would be the next me. And and that's when I realized this turkey does not really get me. Like I am not interested in power. And when I say turkey, I wanted to say something else, but you know, I want to be respectful of your podcast. <laughs> turkey. Uh-huh. Yeah, that's a heavy, yeah. heavy hitting word. Mark. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. I am not interested in leading people that way. I it's not me. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's I mean, it's look, it's interesting after. After, um, you know, after we released the film, What the Bleep Do We Know? I remember going to Q&As and people would look at me like I was some kind of, you know, enlightened being. And I remember thinking, this is terribly uncomfortable. And I was like, oh, my God, you know what's going to happen if I keep on going down this path is this is this is this is how gurus happen. Mm-hmm. And I decided to screw it. I'm not now. Nah, no more. Um, and I stopped, you know, I stopped you know, going to this, you know, screenings and publicity and stuff like that. And I think Ranieri made a, a bad miscalculation because he offered me something I didn't want. And I think it's because he got desperate and he got sloppy. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so there was, there were certain cracks that I began to see, but you know, the thing that's so hard about figuring these things out is every time I would say to him, I'm concerned about this. I'm concerned about that. This is not working. I don't know why. Like, I remember saying to him at one point, I'm really concerned about the way people deify you. And he would say, I honestly can't do anything about that. If they want to do that, they want to do that. And I said, really? Because I can stop them doing it. Mm-hmm. And I bet you can too. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah. Um, but there were all these things that I was pushing him on. But what he would do is he would blame everybody else. So like I would say to him, I, I think this thing the company's doing is not good. And he goes, well, you know, it's because of all the socialist women. I'm like, what? Well, you know, we have, you know, all these women and they have socialist ideas and, you know, and that's, that's the issue. So I think what you need to do is maybe, um, I mean, and I'll help you. I'll help you deal, deal with the problems, you know, but I think that that's what needs to change. And so I was on this treadmill of running around trying to address different things going on because he kept on saying, well, this problem is because of that person. This problem is because of that person. I didn't understand at that time what triangulation was. I didn't understand Uh that he would literally have different conversations with every single person. So everybody was at each other's throats trying to figure to fix something that wasn't the problem. Mm -hmm. And I didn't understand that he was lying. Oh, that's I did not know that for 12 years. I did not know that he was lying. Now I can tell you, Rachel, this mother turkey lies when his mouth is open. Uh 
but I didn't know that. And so in 2017, what happened was that I got um, some evidence that I questioned him on and realized that he was lying. And when I realized he was lying, it, it, it put a crack in it where it was like one lie. Mm-hmm. And then I was wondering, if there's one, is there more? And then I asked more questions, and then there were two, and then there were three, and then there was so many. I was like, oh, my God. Yeah. He's lying to everybody. And that was when the the structure that I had built, and and he had built, because they know how to build these structures. That's when the structure collapsed. Yeah, and I think that it's a process that's still ongoing, and that's... It, it can be frustrating, but it also says something about you. If you don't have that kind of brain makeup, you might not always be able to understand the mind of the malignant narcissist. That's actually a good thing. <laughs> and so there are going to be pieces that are still going to be these mysteries to you because you're so different. But it is good to know then what to watch out for. And to know what that is called when someone does that to you or someone tries to do that to you so that you can keep yourself safe. What is also helpful is that a lot of these people with these personalities, it's like they've read the same manual. Mm -hmm. So as you've studied it, probably now and people have shared their experiences in other groups, you think, yes, that's what we, we may have called it something else or, you know, but it's basically the same sort of thing. So you've come across that? I have as well. And also just to talk a bit about you, like you did a podcast with, I think it was Caroline Leaf. Mm-hmm. Yeah. South, South African. Uh-huh. About, you know, narcissists and sociopaths and psychopaths. And I, I really enjoyed it because you were mapping out the pattern of things. And that's the thing that, I've, that I'm obsessed with. I've always been obsessed with that. Mapping out the pattern of things of like understanding, because here's what's insane. And you know, by the way, I've been I've been writing a book for quite a while about this, which which I will release shortly. I'm doing some tweaks. There was a moment I remember, which speaks to what you're saying about you can't imagine them, where I, I said to him, I don't understand how you know psychopaths so well. Like how do you how do you know them? Mm-hmm. Now, in hindsight, you're like, da-da-da-da, you know. Exactly. And he said to me, Well, you know, I've I mean, I really thought very deeply about these things. I mean, let me see. Let me give you a metaphor. We're in this building now, Mark, right? And I go, yes, we're in the building. Now, let's say um, there's a bunch of androids that are trying to get in. And you, you know, use force to stop them. Do you care? Because they're androids? I go, no. He says, yeah, that's the way it is for the psychopaths. Those are just objects. And it was so interesting because literally what I believe was going on was let me tell you how I work. Mm -hmm. And it's such a delicious joke because you don't know what I know. And just, you understand this guy was, is, is, was, and is a massive practical joker. Mm -hmm. Loves practical jokes. Mm -hmm. You know, there's a moment that's funny. There's one of, one of his favorite films was primal fear. Mm -hmm. You know, it's where Edward Norton does this, terrible crime and Richard Gere defends him. And at the end, Richard Gere gets Edward Norton's character off of the crime. And he goes to prison, he's in the cell and Edward Norton says something. And as Richard Gere is walking away, Edward Norton makes one little mistake. And Richard Gere turns around and says to him, what? And Edward Norton realizes that Richard Gere is onto him. And he just does the slow clap. Well done, you figured me out, you know? And it's so chilling. Ranieri loved that scene. Played it again and again and again and again, because that's the great joke. Wow. You know, so the thing that I struggled with, thank goodness, is I never could understand how you just didn't give a shit about people. Excuse my language. Never could understand. I couldn't. And he was explaining in all these metaphors how how it happens, how it works, da-da-da-da-da-da. And to this day, I can't emotionally inhabit that position but what i do now know is i understand the pattern Mm -hmm. really well i mean i mean i am you know when you as you know you come out of these things and and you are um suspicious of everybody and everything because you've been fooled and betrayed and now you're like i will never allow this so you're looking at everybody you're analyzing everything you know you see 
problems, assassins everywhere kind of thing. But what happened is that I really studied very carefully, um, anecdotally, not, not professionally, um, how these things work and how these people operate and behave. So I can see the pattern now. Yeah. Um, but I am not able to inhabit not caring. I just, I've tried and I've tried and I've tried. Right. And, you know, good. <laughs> glad you, I'm glad you can't do that. That says something significant about you. You can understand that it can happen. Yes. Uh, and it can be chilling when you realize that. You know, I get goosebumps when I think about that. When I think about the person who, who we share the, the planet with, right. who doesn't have that capacity or that interest. And then what then they give themselves permission to do because of that. Right, right. And I think the whole idea of Android is actually really interesting and very telling Yeah. because they're not human and you can yeah. program them. And I, so I think that that's very revealing also. It's true. And also, you know, his, there, were, there were a lot of, you know, there was the, the regular curriculum that, that we had and then what was called the level two curriculum. Uh -huh. Level two curriculum, there was one in particular called, um, I think it was called Patterns. And it was taking a computer programming approach to human behavior and okay. looking at how, you know, you'd look at all these decisions you made in your life. And then the idea was you, you'd see the pattern of how you keep making the same decision. And, you know, now in retrospect, I can say, I mean, yes, okay, I can see that. But the whole, the way it was set up was like, you were a complete robot. And you, you need to do something very drastic to change this program. And I have just the answer for what the drastic thing that you have to do. Mm. But the whole thing was, was, was he looked at people like machines. Mm. And now I understand that a um, sociopath, maybe even a psychopath, because they don't register things the same way, they are in some ways bizarrely free of some of the responses that we we empaths or, or normal people are having. And so they can see some of these things where we're just caught up in upset, rage, sadness, whatever. They can see the pattern quite clearly. And that's mm -hmm. terrifying because mm -hmm. what they do with that then is they they play us like, I don't know, like a keyboard, mm -hmm. you know? And, mm -hmm. and until you see the pattern, as you well know, you just respond to them, you know? They... They, they try to undermine, you know, a narcissist tries to undermine you, says something, and you're like, <gasps> is that true? Am I really, really self-centered? Until you know what you're looking at, and you're like, you know what? Yeah. Nah. Nah. Right. Right. I, I think, you know, it's the, I think about people who've done things during wartime or even during the Holocaust, you know, where if you can reduce people in slavery, if you can think of people as not people, yeah. then it's limitless yeah the you know sort of the horrific things you feel entitled to do to them yeah you know when you were having these discussions with him did you find now in retrospect did you find that he was sort of gauging your response to him like what did he look away when you were talking or was he staring at you was he studying you when you were talking to him what was his style like face to face in those situations Listening, he would look directly at me. Talking, he tended to look away, unless he was making a point, because he would, he would punctuate things very he was carefully. He was very measured. I mean, I, there was one meeting we, we once had. Um, it's funny, it was actually a meeting with a number of us. Alison Mack was there as well, and he was explaining how he uses language. And he said, he said you know, I say blah, 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 and I put emphasis on this, this word, and I say blah, 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 put emphasis on that word. Okay. And what I'm doing to your subconscious is I'm having you really focus on those three words that I'm stringing together. So all the other stuff I'm saying doesn't really matter. But I was like, wow, that's fascinating. You know, I mean, it's, you know, it's hypnosis and, you know, mm -hmm. linguistic programming, you know. Right. Now I understand he was watching very, very carefully. And one of the things that I learned, funnily enough, from Nancy Salzman, who, who, and he taught her this, is she said, she told me one day that the way you really understand what a person wants and the way you convince them that you know what they want and you're on their side is you ask them questions about what they want in their life. 
you know, you ask them what they want and they say, I, you know, I want family. Great. Okay. Well, if you had family, what does that give you? You go, I, I, it gives me uh, togetherness. Okay. And if you had togetherness, what would that give you? Uh, uh, love. Okay. Well, what, if you had love, what would that, and you know, the whole idea was to drill down to the person's subconscious where eventually they came up with some word that they had to struggle to find that wasn't part of the, the, the um, surface structure of their regular language. And she says, once I know what that word is, I'm going to replay that word to the person. And when I say that word again, it's going to bring up a whole series of emotional things with the person, and they're going to know that I know them. Mm-hmm. And she demonstrated it once in, 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 a, in an office with a lawyer. And she sat there writing notes. The lawyer was like, what are you doing? I'm writing notes. Why? We're having a conversation. You know, it was, it was, it was truly weird. But mm-hmm. I understood later that what they're doing and what, what Ranieri was doing, the reason he asked some of the questions he did and the reason he kept on probing is he was looking for almost doorways into deep subconscious feelings and trying to find the word that matched that. So that when he said the word back to you, you know, said something like, you know, let's say the final word was togetherness or something. And he said, you know, and with our education, what if you could find the togetherness that you want so much? What if it's all about togetherness? Mm. And so he'd fire that word, you know? And that's when I, not at that time, because at that time I was thinking, man, can I use this in filmmaking? Can I like transform people's, you know, consciousness with, you know, stuff like that? Mm-hmm. Now I'm looking back and saying, that is not good. You are, you are messing with people's psyche in it. You're putting them in a hypnotic trance, first of all, mm-hmm. albeit low grade, mm-hmm. uh, or low level. And then you're literally playing things back and you're, you're, you're playing them like, like a musical instrument, getting them to feel that you know them better than anybody else because you're mirroring and matching them so perfectly because they don't know the science of it. Mm-hmm. And that's what's so terribly, terribly insidious about all of this is that it seems to be for a good reason. You know, you're, you're told it's, it's so that you can find out what this person really wants and then how can you help them have it? Mm-hmm. And so by and large, everybody that's, you know, working with each other, that's what we're doing. Those that really know what they're doing are using it to elicit information that they can use. There are hundreds of books full of information about us. I mean, thousands of filing cabinets worth of information about us that they still have, you know, about, you know, our, our, our deepest secrets, our greatest yearnings, our greatest fears, right. you know, and they just they just turned it into a codified system where it's like, not only am I going to listen to you, I have to write everything down as well. Right. Yeah. And I think that that also happens a lot that people know there's a file on them that might also be exposed. Right. Exactly. And so I I think that it's not necessarily going to be exposed, but there's the fear of it because I think when people leave after a while, what they also do is they say, you know, okay, fine. So, you know, if they, whatever. They let that information out. It's just going to make them look bad that they're, you know, playing this game and hurting people and exposing people and what's wrong with them. Right. But while you're in it, you can feel that people have something on you. It's true. But, you know, I don't know. I was just related but unrelated. I keep thinking about, and the, and the reason I really enjoyed meeting people like you is because, and, you know, 2018 was my journey of, of really, try, you know, uh, trying to meet a lot of different people, but I'd read their books. And the thing that's so important, I think, you know, all these things that we're talking about, it's really good if people can, can learn these things. And, I, you know, I've listened to some of your podcasts before because I love it, because I love the way you lay out the pattern of things. Um, and I, in my head, I go, right, 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 right. And, then, and sometimes I'll be like, oh, I hadn't thought of it that way. I'm like, that's even, that's even better than the way I was thinking of it. Or wait, I didn't quite have it figured out. And now, you know, Rachel said something and I'm like, oh, that's what it is. I think learning the patterns are really, really important. And that's why I think, you know, what people like yourself do are so vital because it is so, it is so confusing when you don't understand how these people operate. You know, you know if it's true, um, that you know, one in twenty-five people are are you know psychopaths of some kind. That's still a pretty significant statistic. And and somebody pointed out to me today that said, okay, well, that's one in twenty-five, and and each of those 
is affecting numerous people. So the amount of carnage and damage in the world is is a lot more than one in 25. Yeah. Um, but it's so invisible until mm-hmm. you know people like yourself can help people understand how it works. Uh, you know, and then you're like, oh, that's how it works. It's not so it's not just a unique, like it's not just that there's something defective about me, that's why I fell for this. Like there is a whole playbook on how these people operate and they're very, very good at it. You know, and we just didn't know. Right. No, and you wouldn't. You there there's no way to. And I think that people like with Keith, I think he knows that people haven't come across people like him. And so they don't know what to watch out for. And so it's his playground. Yeah. And that's really a horrible thing. Going back to these techniques that were used, it's okay to use techniques if you're letting people know that's what you're doing. And if you say to them, listen, you want help with this? I have this thing. I'm going to try to, you know, to do this with you. This is how it goes. Let me know what you think. And it's also done, you know, one-on-one, not in front of a group of people. And it's tailor-made and you give your consent and a fully informed consent because you know what's about to happen. It's like sitting down for hypnotherapy. You know, that's what's going to be happening. You don't expect it in a lecture. No, no, you really don't. And it's funny you say that because I have such a deep suspicion now of all techniques, you know. And it's not, I don't think this is a permanent condition, <laughs> you know, but I'm still in the phase of like, nobody messes with my mind, you know, because I wouldn't know, I wouldn't know how to do any of those, um, even, you know, not in a therapy session, just talking to somebody to, to take a person to a deep place of connecting with, with what they want, because I'm, I would be worried about, well, what if I swayed them in some direction? by the nature of the thing I ask or the thing that I discuss with them? What if I sway them? And what if, because they might think in that moment, well, maybe Mark has more authority than me. I'll just choose Mark's version. Sure. It's yeah. terrifying. Mm-hmm. It's terrifying. So I, because I wouldn't trust myself with any of those things that we were taught. I'm like, I'm not touching, you know, I'm not, you know, I'm not touching any of that. And that, by the way, just on the same topic, I think that's been the thing that's been very hard for many of us that have left what is in essence, I suppose you could say, a therapy high control group, a therapy cult, mm-hmm. is many of us are so easily triggered by anything that sounds like what we, what we went through. Yes. You know, so it closes the door on getting help. You know, and I've, and I've spoken to various people that have told me, yeah, well, yeah, when people come out of Nixium, like we have to really figure out like, what are the key, what are the words that are going to be a problem? And and then figure out, well, what are the words that are not going to be a problem? Mm-hmm. Because what if this thing feels like an exploration of meaning, you know, which is the technique that was used in Nixium all the time. Or what if this thing I'm saying sounds like a reframe, which is what was done in Nixium. Or what if me talking about your pain you think I'm talking about the inner deficiency, which was used against you in Nixium. A thing that doesn't actually even you know, yeah. really exist, but it's this, this idea. And so I think for a lot of us, the journey to find a healthy mind, Ranieri especially, he, he designed it in such a way that it's really hard for us to get the help that we need because we're triggered everywhere. Mm. Oh, yeah, and he had such a distrust of therapy. And he says, you know, this is therapy, you know, paint by numbers therapy. You don't, you know, you don't need any of that. And they don't know what they're doing. And, you know, this will, this is way faster and anybody can do this and we'll teach you how to do it. That is a recipe for disaster. One more thing before you go. Mark Vicente talked about so many interesting things today, and I look forward to having you hear the second part of our conversation next week. It is really a behind-the-scenes look, which I know all of the listeners appreciate because we know that we're only going to see what the media shows us at times. 
And so that's why I'm so happy to be able to talk to people who have had these experiences so they can share with you some of the stories that the media does not cover. I know so much of his story was offered in the HBO documentary, The Vow. But both today and next week, there are many things we talk about that are not covered anywhere else. I'm especially grateful for Mark's openness. Talking about what happened, I'm sure, is not only a way to start to heal himself, but to find a way to study what happened so that he can share it with others and help them to be able to help themselves in the future. He talked about being in Nexium and how it felt like a never-ending confessional, and that is beautifully said. That's very much what it's like, a true test and a never-ending confessional, and I'll talk about both. Truth is that when there's so much focus on confessing, that is part of the test. How much can the leader get you to disclose? How much can the leader or leaders get you to share before you really felt ready to do so? as a kind of quote-unquote show of your bravery, but really in order for them to see what kind of power they have over you. How much can they get you to share about yourself that you've never shared with anyone else? How much can they also get you to share that gives you the kind of positive reinforcement from them that makes you feel like you're doing the right thing and being a good student and a good follower? Because so much of this behavior is forced upon people, but also becomes part of the kind of social currency in these worlds. If I share things that reveal something so private, will I then move up the ranks? Will I be more liked and respected? Probably in groups like this, at least, yes, you might be more liked and respected by the fellow members, but I don't think the leaders necessarily like you or respect you more. They know they have you. It's not about liking you or respecting you. Just like with a lot of things that are done to an extreme, the reason given for it is not necessarily the real reason. Usually confession is seen as a way for you to unburden yourself and a way for you to unblock the things that have been blocking you and to get things out so that you can move forward in your life. But in order for that to be done in a healthy way, it needs to be done for the right reasons. Really, for your advancement. And in groups like this, it's never that pure. It's usually never for the right reasons. When confession is followed by positive acceptance, help, growth, support, and love from others or yourself, then confession develops a great rush of satisfaction and self-esteem and a sense of personal power. We all need to feel known and heard and loved, accepted and appreciated. But when confession is followed by the push for even more confession so that you never feel like you've quite confessed enough to satisfy the people around you, or when confession is followed by this sinking feeling that the thing that you confessed is now being used as a way to get into your head, or as a way to get into your heart, or to control you, and cause behavior modification, and also to shame you, then there's no way for it to be healthy, or even at the very least, safe. In many groups and controlling relationships as well, there's forced confession. People in these often feel they have to share more than they wanted or even share things that are an exaggeration of the truth because that's the way to be liked. That's the way to get off the hot seat. That's the way to show you're a real team player. That's the way to show you're brave enough to do so and that you're ready to take these risks and are committed to your self-betterment. So sometimes that openness is just not paired with honesty. It's an interesting thing to hear yourself saying something that might not be true because you think you really don't have a choice. And if that is the case, then it's a really good diagnostic moment that the situation itself is not a healthy one. When I was studying to be a therapist many years ago, I participated in a class in college that was a group therapy class. It was to teach people how to facilitate group therapy. Some of you have heard this story. I was experiencing kind of an upswing in my life at the time, and things were really good. I was healthy, my family was healthy, and I was dating someone great, and there was nothing to complain about, really. 
I mean, little life things, but no big life things. And so I participated in this group therapy class and we were to go around the circle and open up to each other and share what was on our minds. And a lot of people launched right into sharing their trauma. Things that had happened to them when they were young or experiences they had had recently or things they were terrified that were going to be happening to them that they had no control over. Things that were truly troubling. And when it came to me, I mean, I could have thought of some things, but, you know, things were basically good if you keep it all in perspective. So the teacher then, as well as the class, looked at me quizzically. And then the quizzical look turned to disappointment. And all because I didn't really have major stories to share, or at least ones that I thought that showed any kind of major trauma. And then I noticed knowing glances from the teacher to the other participants, like they knew I was holding on to something or hiding something like, you poor thing, you must not feel safe or ready to share, but hopefully soon you will. And it's true, as with all of us, we could summon up things from our past difficulties, uncomfortable moments, But there wasn't trauma per se, at least nothing that came to mind. But the people in the class, again, as well as the teacher, did not look at all happy with me or, more importantly, happy for me. There was a real turning on me, like I was purposely and selfishly not willing to participate in this class fully and was letting others share when I wasn't willing to. These experiences certainly have shaped the way I run support groups now because I'm very aware of how a group can turn on people and make assumptions and criticisms and false diagnoses. So I was actively rejected. And the next week when people went around to share, I still didn't have a lot to talk about, which really in life outside this group class and in life outside cultic groups would again be seen as a good thing. But here I was actually verbally attacked by two of the people who thought it was wrong of me not to want to open up. And after the class, when people walked to their cars in groups, I was left to walk alone. So I remember calling a woman who was a seasoned therapist. She'd already been a therapist for about 40 years. I liked her. I trusted her. I had learned from her. I told her about the situation. She's very ethical highly moral. And to my great shock, she said, if they're turning on you because you don't have war stories, then make something up. I couldn't believe what I was hearing. What do you mean make something up? And she said, Rachel, this is a class. It's not actual group therapy. You don't have a responsibility to bury your soul in school. The professor and the other students are taking themselves way too seriously and they're turning on you and seemingly forgetting that this is a class. And if you don't have something to talk about, then make it up and see how they respond. And then remember that moment because it will shape your future as a facilitator of groups. It will make you aware. So the next group class, I made something up. It was very uncomfortable, actually, but I thought it's an interesting experiment. And I couldn't believe the response. People actually got up out of their chairs and hugged me. One of them was even crying. And the teacher smiled at me and was so happy and actually spoke about how proud she was of herself for helping me get so comfortable that I felt like I could safely share that whatever it was that I shared. Actually, truth is, I don't remember what I shared because it's much easier to remember the truth than a lie. So I don't remember that one. And then after class, people wanted to talk to me and walk me to my car And I could see how conditional the relationships were and how much social pressure there was and how much acceptance or rejection there was based on the gravity of the topic I shared and how willing I was to be raw in front of people I barely knew. Certainly makes me think of Nexium. Ironically and very sadly, a few months later, my father passed away and then my grandmother and my relationship broke up. And I remember thinking a very sick thought, and it went as follows. If only I were still in that group class, boy, would they like me now. That was a sign of how unhealthy it was. 
It should never be that way. But it is in a lot of situations that are not healthy. And in these situations like Nexium, it happens all the time. The goal is for people to have these momentous experiences, but for so many of them, they're manufactured. Even people who are being arrested have the right to remain silent. But you don't have the right within cults. At least you think you don't. And that, again, should never be the case. Your information is your information, and information is power, and for some people, the more information that's private that they can siphon from you, the more powerful they enjoy being over you. And the way they get you to do it is by convincing you it's for your benefit. And so, usually the point of discussions and revelations and openness within cults is not to hear all the wonderful things that you've done, but to hear all the things that you're ashamed of or the things maybe considered as weaknesses, the things that they can help you with, the things that make you feel like a bad person or not a self-actualized, aware person. It's what they call a guilt-presumptive process. They try to tear you down. They're assuming your guilt. Confession in its pure form or in its religious form originally is a means to unburden yourself, but in the wrong hands, it becomes an added burden you need to carry So ask why people want to know things before you give them an answer, if the question itself makes you uncomfortable. And if the answer to why do you want to know this is, well, why are you asking why I want to know this? Or what makes you feel like you can't trust me that you're asking why I want to know this? Or your suspicious thinking on this makes me think you have something to hide. All of those things are just a manipulation to get you to share more information than you want. And if people are not going to be holding on to your private and purposely unspoken sensitive information with care and love and support, then they are the last ones who deserve to get it. Talk to you next week. Thanks again for listening. Tired of ads? Well, listen or download this show for free on NPR's radio public app, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and more. Please support Indoctrination at patreon.com slash indoctrination. We have over 100 interviews that you can access with any donation. Subscribers receive bonus interviews and other cool goodies. And we love hearing from you too. So send us an email at indoctrinationshow at gmail.com. Thank you for your support.